one of the things that the Lord really challenged me in this process was a lot of us, as we think about what we can give, many of us are thinking about, okay, I'm going to need a certain amount for my retirement. To me, that's a step of faith. The thing that it blessed me so much was reading, if you sow generously, you'll reap generously. So to me, it was, okay, God, I'm going to trust you that if I give away what I was, a portion of what I was planning on depending on, I'm trusting you to supply that. If you're visiting with us, please know that we're not here to try to get your money. We're not all about money. But being a Christian involves what you do with your stuff, and we talk about that gladly. So this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. Hope you have a, a blessed experience, and invite you to just raise your hand if you need a Bible. I didn't grow up in a church where they taught right from the Bible, so this might be new to you, but be sure to grab a Bible here. You're welcome to keep the Bible. We're reading through the book of Genesis. Some of you may have read it. Some of you gave up when you got to the genealogy, so-and-so begot so-and-so, but hope you'll stick with us here because it's a great book. We're calling it the faith of our fathers because we're talking about what does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to live by faith? I was thinking about an illustration of this. My computer has a printer that's on the network, and several of our computers you know, all go to that one printer. But for some reason, my computer, unlike some of the kids' laptops, keeps getting kicked offline, right? Keeps not being connected to the, the main computer. And I'm like, man, what's wrong here? But, but, but it, to me, it's a great illustration of how most people in this world live. They're offline when it comes to God. They're disconnected, right? Now, the thing is, it doesn't mean everybody's running around on this world going, I hate God. If he was here, I'd spit at him. They're just disconnected. He's not a part of their life. They don't really think about him. He's not a focus. And what he has to say or his opinions or thoughts really are pretty meaningless. Now, there are extremes. Like two weeks ago, I was giving a talk somewhere, and this guy and I were talking afterward. He goes, no, I, I preach the gospel. You know, this is what the Bible says. This is how you can come to Jesus. He goes, who told you to give a talk like that? I should have just said God, right? but I was like, I said, oh, uh, what, what's your religious background? He goes, well, I used to be Southern Baptist, used to be. I said, oh, he goes, now I'm a staunch atheist, as opposed to an atheist, I, he's a staunch one. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have, so I said, did you have a bad experience? You know, what, what do you mean a staunch atheist? He says, no, 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 he goes, I just went away to California, and I got a PhD in molecular biology, and I've just seen that the Bible has so many contradicting truths. And I'm thinking to myself, you obviously didn't have logic class because contradicting truths, right? But the point wasn't to try to humiliate him. It was simply to go, hmm, that's no, kind of sad. Here's a guy who's adamant. He knows there's no God. So the reality is, what the Bible says is, if you're going to have a relationship with God, it is a relationship that starts with faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to believe or to, to please God because anyone who comes to God, number one, it says this, they must believe that he is, right? So God's not going to come down here and say, gee, believe in me. Here I am. Look, see me? Seeing is believing. He just doesn't do that very often. So, so, so the number one question we start with is, do you believe in God, right? 
You must believe that he is. Now, it's not like God hasn't given any clues that he exists, right? When the three bears came in, they knew someone was in the house, right? They saw clues. God has given clues in creation where we're like, it's inexcusable to go, how do I know there's a God? There's no evidence, right? But a life of faith in the Bible is far more than just believing in God. So the first thing I want you to think about is that faith is always a response to a revelation from God. Faith does not begin with me where I go, I'm just going to have faith, right? It's, it's, it's God puts something forth, a revelation, an idea, a promise, a thought, and then I decide whether or not I'm going to believe that. That's why I almost kind of, I want to just go shake people when I see them on the news, you know, they're like, don't worry, our faith will get us through, right? And then when they're probed, like, faith in what? They're like, well, our faith, um, in our faith. You know, well, what? That's not faith. Biblical faith is always a response to God's revelation, okay? I want you to really think about that. This book claims to be a revelation from God. Biblical faith is to say, okay, if this is what it says, then my response is, I believe it and I'm going to follow it, okay? And you can test that out as you read the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, he went out. By faith, Noah, warned by God, he built an ark. By faith, Moses. It's always a response to God's promises, Okay? It's not easy, right? Because I can't see God. So yeah, somebody told me 2,000 years ago, some guy hung on a cross and then rose from the dead. You and I have to make a choice. If that's what the promise of God is, do I believe that? All right? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Abraham's life. And Abraham becomes the, the, the premier example of a life of faith. And what we're going to see this morning is that a life of faith, it involves struggle. But Ultimately, there's some wonderful things that God will teach us in this passage. It's really, really cool. So let's pray. Lord, may the Holy Spirit help us to, to learn how to live by faith in your promises. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw that spiritual problem solving is very different from human problem solving. Because God had given Abraham a promise. You're going to have a son. So Abraham's like, well, my wife ain't getting pregnant, so I'll take matters in my own hands. Remember, all the problems that came because he went and married his maid and they had Ishmael. So that's where the chapter ended. Now we're going to fast forward 13 years, okay? Ishmael is now a 13-year-old teenager. He and dad hunt together, fish together. He loves his son. Ishmael's his son, right? And he's still thinking Ishmael's going to be the heir, right? Now, 13 years later, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, think about this. It wasn't like God appeared to Abram every day, like he got up every morning. Good morning, God. And God's like, hi, Abram. What are you going to do today? Just every once in a while. It might be a 10-year gap. And you're like, well, what did he do for those 10 years? He lived a life of faith. But every once in a while, to Abram, God would appear again. So Abraham's he's chilling with his 13-year-old son. What's up, Ish, you know, son? And God comes down. He goes, listen, i got to talk to you. So he, so he appears to Abraham, right? And he says, I am God Almighty. So he gives him another new name. Remember last week, El Roy, the God who sees? El, or God Almighty is the Hebrew word El Shaddai. You're like, remember Amy Grant? El Shaddai, El Shaddai. The Hebrew word Shaddai um, 
etymologists aren't sure what, what the origin is. It could come from a word that, that meant mountain. And so some have translated God of the mountain, which would be the highest God. Or, or um, some, some people believe it came from a, a, an ancient Semitic word for the breast, that God was the supplier or provider. But most translations use something to do with God's power because in the context, it has to do with his ability to, to do what he needs to do. So this, the New American Standard calls it God Almighty. Almighty. And some people pray that way, Almighty God, right? All-powerful God. So he says, Abraham, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, here's what I want you to do. Walk before me and be blameless. That's not normal language. Like, when my kids were growing up, I never said, hey, listen, walk before me. What does that mean, walk before me? We're going to come back to that. And he says, and listen, I will establish my covenant between me and you. This isn't the first time he told him. He's reassuring him. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram didn't look at God like, yo, what's up, man? The man upstairs, you're my dog. He was very reverent to God. Look what happened. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. And he said, as for me, behold, my covenant was, is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. So now God's going to give him a name change. He's like, I'm going to change your name. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment. The, 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 the word Abram means exalted father, okay? And you're like, yeah, that's cool. That's like the faith that he was going to have lots of kids. And he's going, no, it couldn't have been. Because this is what his dad named him when he was a little boy, right? I'm going to call you Abram. So some commentaries suggest that it wasn't the emphasis on Abram, it was on his dad, Tara. Tara was, a, was a, a wealthy, significant man. And so it may have had the idea that you were exalted in re, with respect to your father, or you came from an exalted father. So all his life he grew up, my name is Abram, and God goes, not anymore. Now it's going to be Abraham. And Abraham literally means a father of a multitude. So he's got a new name change, right? Now that's always a sketchy thing when you try that name change. You know, you remember when you were a kid, you're like, yo, um, I want you guys to call me Rocky. And they're like, nah, nah, Twiggy. Yo, Twiggy. Like, oh, it didn't work so well. So this was significant because he, he's got he's to break out his new moniker. He's got to come to his friends. He goes, I'm a Abram, a.k.a. Abraham, right? So, and, 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 and to, be, to, to change your name to father of a multitude when you're not having a whole lot of success with this reproductory stuff, it's kind of like a little embarrassing. Like, really? You want us to call you that? He's like, God said to. You know, he's got his little tat on there, call me Abraham, right? So God gives him a new name, and he says, because I'm going to make you the father of a, of a multitude of nations. And just a real quick thought. You ever thought about that, this whole idea of a name change? Like, this isn't the, the only name change in the Bible. Like, like, Jesus says to Peter, your name is Cephas, but you're going to be called Petros. It's something to think about. God doesn't see you for who you used to be. He sees you for what you're going to be with him in your life, what you could be if you walk with him. And when you become a Christian, the book of Revelation talks about how God gives us a new name. Now, don't worry about going out and figuring out with God, what's my new name? Just, it's just a cool thought that, that God changed his name. He's a, he's a new creation. 
And he says, I'll make you a fruitful nation. Nations will come from you. Kings will come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That's a big deal in the Bible. God's going to echo that. I will be your God and you will be my people. That theme goes all the way through the rest of the Bible. It just keeps developing, ultimately in the new covenant. I will be a God to you, and you will be my people. God doesn't have a whole bunch of different families. He's got one big forever family, right? And one day when God comes back, the Bible says God himself will dwell among his people. Now, this doesn't mean everybody on the planet, okay? There's billions of people on the planet now, and there's been billions that have lived before. Not everyone is online with God, okay? What we learn from the New Testament is if you're going to be one of those descendants of Abraham, God is your God and you're his people, you have to connect with God by faith. Genesis 3 says, it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. But in, in, in this nutshell kernel form, God's introducing this idea that his desire is to be connected to people. And one day, even though he's invisible now, when he comes back, God himself will dwell among us. We'll see him and we'll be his people, and he'll be our God forever. Verse 8, and God says, I'm going to give to you the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Every day when you're watching the news and you're going, man, can't those um, people get along over in the promised land? Why don't they just split it up, right? And then when you kind of propose, well, God said it belongs to the Jews, right? And it's kind of comical when people go, well, what right does God have to come along and tell people that it belongs to so-and-so? And I'm going, wait, think, think about what you just said. What right does God have, right? If God said the land of Canaan is going to belong to the Jewish people forever, then who are we to go? What right does God have? They have to split it equally, right? This land is God's land. The whole universe is God's land. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, I learned some this week when I was studying. I didn't know that circumcision was already being practiced in the world at this point. I, I pictured Abraham, now, of course, it wasn't in English. I pictured Abraham going, circum what? And God goes, yeah. What? Right? <laughs> but I learned in one of the commentaries that circumcision was practiced among certain people in the Semitic culture. So this wasn't a brand new thing, right? But this was God instituting, we're going to have a symbol of what it means to be one of my community, right? Now, I'm sure Abraham's probably like, couldn't we just do like a secret shake or we could all like get robes, you know, like we'll all identify. And God goes, no, listen, this is how it's going to be. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it will be the sign of the covenant. Okay, so it's going to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. Now, this is incredibly important because this is still being misunderstood. In Jesus' day, the Jews thought circumcision itself was your ticket in, right? And they would, even if Gentiles wanted to follow the God of the Jews, they'd say, you got to get circumcised. And Jesus would say, don't think because you're circumcised you're going to be in the kingdom, right? 
But isn't this exactly what half the people in America are doing? Oh, will you baptize my baby because I want to make sure he gets into heaven? Next time somebody tells you that, you go, where did you see that in the Bible? That baptism is going to get you in. Circumcision and baptism were just outward signs. They were never intended to be the reality itself. So Paul picks up on this in Romans 4. He says, Abraham received circumcision. It was simply a sign of his faith. It's a symbol, but it's not the faith itself. So a servant who is born in your house or is bought with money, he shall be circumcised, and thus shall my covenant be for an everlasting covenant. Anyone who's uncircumcised, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Now God's going to do something that he hasn't done yet. He kept telling Abraham, you're going to have a kid. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a kid. But up to this point, he has never yet said it's going to be through Sarah. So in this little unit that we're going to look at, four times God goes, it's going to be through Sarah. Because remember, Abraham had already come up with a good idea. Hey, how about if it's through Hagar? So four times God's going to go, no, no, no. It's going to be Sarah. Now remember, Sarah's an old woman. And Abraham's 99. Verse 15, then God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, I couldn't find a real clear, solid definition for Sarai, but the word Sarah means princess or queen. So he says, you're, you're going to change your wife's name to queen, right? Some of your girls are going, that's all right. I kind of like that, you know? Honey, I want you to call me queen from now on. And the reason that she would be called queen, because he says, kings are going to come from her. She's going to be the mother of kings. So, so both of them got a name change. Verse 16, I will bless her. And indeed, now here he says, and I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, this is really funny. Look at this, verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, that's kind of rude, right? Like, God's talking to you, and he tells you something, you fall on your face laughing in front of him, right? So when I first read this, I'm like, boy, what an expression of unbelief. But I read something that I thought was really interesting. Somebody said this. He said, you know, there is a type of laughter that's an expression of happiness hidden behind exclamations of doubt, like this. You're kidding. You're kidding. So I don't think he laughed in God's face like, that's so stupid. <laughs> now, at least he had the, the wherewithal to go, don't say anything out loud. So notice carefully, he starts laughing. He falls on his face and he laughs, right? But then it says, and he said in his heart. So if this was a cartoon, now you would see the little circle around his head showing what he's thinking, right? What's he thinking as he's laughing? He, it says, He's laughing, saying in his heart, will a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90, 90 years old, bear a child? Now, this is funny, because Paul picks up on this in Romans 4. He goes, Abraham considered his own body dead, and he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. So there were a few nights when they were putting on their pajamas that it wasn't completely dark, right? And so he's 100, she's 100, and he's going... <clears throat> We're not going to have a kid, you know? The idea of even, you know, going through any activities that could lead to kids is just kind of like, kind of funny to him, right? So he's like, really? But again, I don't think this was unbelief. I don't think this was total like, no way. 
right? It was, it was a laughter, which, which interestingly, so he laughs, right? Abram laughs, and then look at the next verse. Abram says in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, look, I already got a 13-year-old son. Let him be the heir. And God goes, no. Verse 19, Sarah, your wife, shall bear your son. That's the second time. And you shall call his name Isaac. And this is, this is a laugher. Isaac means he laughs. So Abraham goes, ha, 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 ha. And God goes, you're going to call your kid. He laughs, right? And sometimes I've seen newborns. And you got to understand, I'm in a predicament. I'm, I'm a man of God. I'm a pastor, right? People say, oh, pastor, isn't my baby beautiful, right? I'm torn in conscience because most new babies aren't beautiful. They've been through a rugged journey, and their heads are like cones, and their faces are all distorted. Isn't my baby beautiful? So I'm just like, now that's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I should just laugh from now on. Ain't my baby beautiful? <laughs> okay, right? So... So God says, why don't you call his name Isaac? He laughs. Because there was going to be just great joy in the fulfillment of God's promise. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I'll make him fruitful and I'll multiply him exceedingly. He shall become a father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. And in parentheses, and in case you didn't hear me, Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. That's the third time he says, Sarah's going to have a baby. I know she's not, I know you're 100. Sarah's going to have a baby. Now, the next thing is really cool because there's something that you'll learn in the Bible as you start reading the Bible. If God says to do something, okay, read my lips, do it. Right? Do it. It's amazing. How many people, we, we go like this, oh God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? On earth. Just like it's done in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? How's God's will done in heaven? If God says to Gabriel, hey, clean up that angel food cake. Do you think Gabriel goes, yeah, when I'm done playing Nintendo, right? God's will is done perfectly in heaven, completely, obediently, automatically, excellently, every time, right? And angels look down on earth and go, wait, aren't they your followers? Didn't you say not to do that, God? Or didn't you say they're supposed to do that? The essence of a disciple, Jesus says, go and make disciples and teach them how to obey as a response to this great Savior who gave his life for us. Christians are called to obey God, not to mess around and procrastinate and make excuses. Do what he says. And you're like... Yeah, well, that was easy back then. Really? Can you imagine staff meeting for Abraham that day? Look at the next verse. Verse 22. When he finished talking, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants born in his house or bought his money, every male among the house of Abraham's household, and he circumcised their foreskin the very same day. Now think about that. Hey, Abraham said he had hundreds of servants, hundreds of men, all got, hey, Abraham's got company meeting. Everybody show up. Okay, we're going to have a new sign that we're part of my community, God's community. What's it going to be, Abraham? We getting new outfits? No, we're doing circ... We're doing what? And we're doing it today. I wouldn't have... I wouldn't want to have been the HR guy making that announcement. But twice it says they did it that day, right? 
That's a great lesson about faith. If God says to do something, you don't have to understand why. Just do it. And it's hard, right? I'm not acting like, oh, I get it right every time. But this is a great example of a faith life. So, verse 24, when Abraham was 99 years old, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. See, notice, now Abraham was circumcised. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a limb, but I'm thinking here that Abraham probably did this. I'll go first. You know, I don't get this. So many parents in America, they think that youth group and Sunday school and Christian school was created to, to turn your kid into a good Christian, right? The number one influence on your kid is you and how you live in your home. Because Christianity is caught far more than it's taught, right? And sending them off to youth group and learning their Awana verses has far less of an influence on how we live. It's very convicting. So I can imagine Abraham saying, all right, everybody get circumcised now and let me know when it's all done. No, he, I'll go first. He stepped up. Abraham was circumcised, right? Nobody wanted to do this, but he, but he led. And I want to especially say to you men, lead, right? Lead. Yeah, we mess up. Don't be a hypocrite and act like we got it all together. I'm always apologizing, sorry. But lead. And parents, lead. You know, don't say to kids, do you want to go to church, Jimmy? Or do you want to stay in your pajamas and have your Cocoa Krispies? I leave it up to my kids. Lead, right? But lead by example. So, good deal. Now, we get to chapter 18. Here's the thing. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, the worst thing you can have is a chapter break because it makes you think like, okay, here's a whole new unrelated story. Remember, the Bible didn't have verses and chapters. So what I try to do, I encourage you to do this. Just pretend that there's nothing there. Don't, don't act like there's a break here because there's a connection. The story is continuing. This is not a commercial and, oh, let's start off on another story, right? So let's just remove chapter 18 and we'll just keep going. So, so think about chapter 17. The Lord appeared to Abram. I am El Shaddai, and I will make my covenant with you. And I'm going to change your name to Abraham, exalted or father of nations. And here's going to be the sign. We're going to be circumcised as a sign that I am your God and all of my descendants are your descendants after you. And then your wife, Sarah, she's going to be called a, a queen, a princess, and, and a child's going to come from her. And Abraham obeys God and then says, and the Lord went up. God was gone. So now, boom, 18.1. Now the Lord appeared to him. So here comes God back down. The Lord appeared to him, this time by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, again, it's really fun. This is why when you watch Bible movies, be very careful because there's so much nonsense where they add stuff. And you're like, that's not what the Bible says. But one thing they do often add that's good is you kind of get an idea of what kind of a culture... What, you know, what did these tents look like? What did the land look like? So picture Abraham, they're, they're kind of in this, you know, nomadic lifestyle, living in tents. And in the heat of summer, you, you know, you didn't just keep working through the day. You know, Mexicans weren't the ones who came up with the idea of a siesta. It just makes sense. During the, the hottest part of the day, you chill. So Abraham's just, he's just, he's under, smart enough to build the tents under the oak trees. So shade's a big deal. You ever been to, Arizona or something, it, you know, it's like 100 degrees out here, but under the shade, if it's not humid, it's a lot cooler. So 
He's just getting a chill on. He's cooling down in front of, he's sitting in front of the tent. Now look at verse 2. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now again, get out of American culture. He's not sitting on his front step and three people walk by. He's out in the wilderness. You might not see strangers for weeks or months when suddenly three unfamiliar figures are showing up, right? What's, what's going through his mind? Does he know who they are? Does he run to them? Does he run away from them? Does he say to his servants, get your swords, right? Now, I'm going to suggest, not everyone agrees with it, I'm going to suggest that he knew that this was God. We're going to learn from this chapter that this, these three men are actually God and two angels, right? But, but the text begins, it just says, and he lifted up his eyes, and there were three men, okay? Because in the Old Testament, we talked about this. God could come down and, and take on the appearance of a man, a Christophany. So this is Lord Jesus and two angels, okay? You're like, how do you know that? You read, read the next chapter, and you'll see it, but we'll do that next week. So he, he runs, and he bows himself to the earth, and he says, my Lord, if I found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may go on since you visited your servant. Do as you have said. Now again, this is kind of cool because it, it caused me to, to think about this. Was Abraham just hospitable? Did he do this for everybody? Or was he like falling all over himself because it was God? It is interesting. I, I read a quote about hospitality that kind of... Um, kind of made me think about this, that how you treat strangers is, is somewhat of a moral test here. Because, because in the next chapter, these angels are going to go and visit. God's like, I'm going to go take a look at what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And boy, they didn't get much hospitality, right? So, so the author of Hebrews picks up on this. He goes, be careful to be hospitable to strangers because Abraham once did that and he was entertaining angels unaware. See, one of the callings of a Christian is to be hospitable. Interestingly, the Hebrew or the Greek word for hospitality means to, to be a friend or a lover of strangers, right? We're Americans. We close our garage door. Who's on my property? Honey, get the beware a dog sign out, you know? No solicitors. You know, we're, we're very private and we're very, you know, don't speak to strangers. See, that's not Christian. And so... Possibly this was just Abraham. Abraham just was a mark of a godly person, his hospitality. Matter of fact, it made me think of Matthew 25 when Jesus says, enter my kingdom and because you fed me and you gave me something to drink, you visited me in prison. And they're like, when did we do that? He said, when you did it to any of my little ones, you did it to me. So be careful how you treat people that you don't know. You just treat them like, ah, oh, who's that moron? Like, yeah, right? The mark of, of, of Christianity is that we, we welcome strangers, Right? So, I think, though, Abraham quickly picks up that this is God, right? So, he tells Sarah, prepare three measures of flour, make bread cakes. He tells uh, his servant, he goes and he grabs a tender calf, verse 7. He hurries to prepare it. He takes curds and milk and the calf which we have prepared, and he placed it before them. So, he made this big meal, right? He didn't go, honey, do we got any more of them uh, leftover fish sticks in there? Or, um, hey, you guys want some chips? He makes, like, this huge meal to just lavish them with hospitality. Now, I thought this was kind of cool. Look what it says. He placed it before them, and he was standing by them as they ate. He didn't even sit with them. He's just standing there, you know, 
how is it? Can I get you some more? You know, he's just lavishing them with hospitality. Now, mind you, this is God, okay? Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And you're like, ha ha, this can't be God. God knows everything. Why would he say, where is your wife? And they go, go back to Genesis 3, when God says to Abraham, or to Adam, where are you? Or did you eat from the tree? Sometimes when God asks a question, hello, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. So where's Sarah, your wife? And he says, oh, she's in the tent. Verse 10. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's a fourth time. Uh, this is funny. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, this, now think about this. Here's God. He's like, man. He's like, tell me about what spices you use here. Abraham, this is really good lamb. Oh, your wife's bread is delicious. Where is your wife anyway? Because he's back in the tent. And Sarah's standing back there. She can hear him talking. And she hears. She doesn't, I don't think she knows it's God. But, but God says, next year your wife's going to have a son. Now remember, she's 90 years old. So she does the same thing. She starts laughing. I, this is funny, right? So it says, verse 11, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, when I first read pleasure, I'm like, did she mean, you know what? It's a ple Which, by the way, I feel compelled to say this. There are some churches that teach intimacy is only for procreation, not supposed to be fun, right? That's nonsense. God created intimacy to be enjoyed and delighted in within marriage. It's not just for procreation. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable, the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So don't have a warped view of, of marital relations. It's a beautiful gift from God, okay? But, but the word, shall I have pleasure, one commentary said, probably just meant, shall I conceive, being an old woman. But this is funny, right? It says, she laughed, but, but look at it carefully, read the text. It says, Sarah laughed to herself, within herself. So, God's, she's behind God's back, and she's going, right? And God's not even looking. He goes, why did Sarah laugh? I love this. Look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. So she decides to enter the conversation. Why did Sarah laugh? Now she's like, I didn't laugh. I love what God says. This is hysterical. Verse 15. And God said, no, you did laugh. End of discussion, right? She's like, I did not. And he goes, no, you did. <laughs> I don't know what. What did she do after that? Boy, that guy's really smart. He's... He must have ESP, you know. It's God, right? He says, no, you laughed, right? But here we go. This is a great verse. If this verse doesn't bless you, you got to get back online with God. He says in verse 13, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I bear a child when I'm old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Look at that again. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? No, and you know what? 
grab that sucker. If you're a Christian, take that verse and, 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 and Velcro it to your soul and go, I need to hear that, God. You know what's cool is, again, as you're learning to study the Bible, we're always trying to teach you to study the Bible. You can do this, right? The Hebrew word here translated difficult normally is translated wonderful. This is the same word that's used in Isaiah 9 when it says, a child will be born to us and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Right? It's the same word that David used in Psalm 139 when he says, God, you know every word. You think about me, your, your knowledge. He says, God, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Right? So literally, this could be translated, why did you laugh? Is anything too wonderful? Is there anything that is so magnificent? Something that I can't do? Some trend, uh, Hebrew dictionaries call it extraordinary. Is there anything that's too extraordinary for God? So you go, well, what does that have to do with me? And I'll tell you what it has to do with you, right? What are you wrestling with? Tough marriage, finances, depression, sin struggle, loneliness, addiction, fear. We, we, we all struggle. I'll be the first one in line. I've said this before. I've had counseling for marriage. I've struggled with my kids. I've struggled with depression. I understand that. I get it. It's not like pastors that were like, you know, you, 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 you peons have to just gut it out. We all struggle. So the life of faith involves struggle. But boy, does it help to have a verse like this. Is anything too difficult for me? Why are you getting all worked up here? Return to your rest, O my soul. And this is the, the wonderful thing about the word of God. It puts, our, it puts our heart at ease. It gives us hope in our struggle. So let me close with a couple thoughts this is a great passage. A couple thoughts about this walk of faith. Number one, that a walk of faith requires a life that's set apart from the world, right? I hate this, but so many Americans, to them being a Christian is, yeah, I said that prayer. It is not what it means to be a Christian, to say a prayer. It's a, it's a, it's a decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And then, you ready for this? God says, walk before me and be blameless. And I want to tell you what I think that means. I love this. I read this in a commentary. A guy named Benno Jacob. Look what he said. To walk before God means this, that you place yourself under God's exclusive supervision. That's a cool phrase. God says, walk before me. Okay, God, I place myself under your exclusive supervision. What is that going to look like? Well, it means God's going to be the one who guides you, protects you, and directs you. Like a sheep putting themselves under the supervision of a shepherd. Like a child who walks under the eyes of their father. So if you're going to walk before God, if you and I are going to walk before God, that means when questions arise or decisions have to be made, our directions come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm not just living for myself, okay? So ask yourself as a Christian, are you walking by faith? 
are you seeking to walk before God and be blameless? Are you placing yourself? You don't just do this once. You're like, I did this when I was nine years old at camp. Yeah, well, how's that been going? So walking before God, the life of faith means I'm regularly reminding myself that I am under the direction and leadership of the Lord Jesus himself. This is what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, go and make disciples and teach them to obey, right? So, so this is a great reminder as a church. We draw together and we say, Jesus is Lord, and we want to walk before him as believers. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be walking before him and being blameless. Number two, I want to encourage you as a Christian to identify yourself with your new name. You're like, well, what does that look like? Well, the idea of Christian, when that name first came out, it was probably not a compliment, right? In the book of Acts, it says, and, and, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Some people think it meant little Christ. Or the idea is to be a Christ follower, okay? In the, in the early church, to identify yourself as a Christian brought scoffing, persecution, trouble, right? So Peter says, if any of you suffers as a Christian, let him in that name glorify God. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to realize your identity, if you're a believer, is a Christian. And so identify yourself. You're like, well, you know, but some people might understand that. That's why I just witnessed by my life, right? Well, Abraham could have pulled that. He would have been like, okay, God, I'll take that new name, but I'm not telling anyone because they're going to laugh because I'm not so good at fathering. How can I tell them I'm, I'm a father of a multitude, right? Identify yourself. You're not a filthy sinner, you know, who just God puts up with. You're a child of God, dearly loved by him, called to be his child, and you are a follower of Christ. And so unashamedly identify yourself. You don't have to have a big bumper sticker and a T-shirt but don't just witness by your life. And please, I don't understand this. There are so many people who say, oh, yeah, I'm saved. Are you baptized yet? Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. What do you mean you're not ready for that? When are you going to be ready for that? To, to become a Christian is to identify yourself publicly. Jesus says, confess with your mouth, Jesus is your Lord. Right? So imagine people in there. Hey, Abraham, you know that circumcision thing? I'm, I'm not ready for all that, you know? Then come back when you're ready, right? So, so let's, let's, as a church, you know, let's not be obnoxious, beating people with the Bible, but, but know, your, know your identity. You're a new creature in Christ. You're a Christian. You're a forgiven sinner, and you're called to live before God and to draw your family and others to Christ. And then third, I don't know what you're struggling with, but Allow yourself to grab this verse and go, okay, God, for me, here's what this means to me. Nothing is too difficult for you. But I want to give you something that I found really helpful. To live by faith doesn't mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that you're not struggling. Some of you are going, I want to believe this, Pastor. I want to believe, I can't stop this. I want to believe I can do all things through Christ. I want to believe God's going to come through for me. I love Mark chapter 8 when Jesus said to one of his potential followers. He says, if you believe me, all things are possible. This guy says this. He goes, Jesus, I do believe you, but help my unbelief. First time I heard that, my tears didn't even hit my cheeks. I just wept. I was like, yes, that's how I feel. 
I do believe, but help my unbelief. So take this verse, say, God, nothing's too difficult for you. Help my unbelief. And let the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit just minister that to your heart and live it out by faith. Nothing is too difficult for God. Then one last thought here. This whole idea of getting circumcised. Circumcision in the Bible seemed to have two symbols. One of them was potentially miraculous reproduction, like why couldn't they put a cut in their arm, you know? But it was in a very, very precious place that, that was close to reproduction, reminding of the miracle of the reproduction of Isaac, a miraculous birth, much like our miraculous new birth. But I think the bigger thing is this. Circumcision in the rest of the Bible began to be a symbol of purity, of a changed heart, of putting off of your sinful ways. In fact, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, circumcise your heart. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to think about this. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you're like, yeah, I go to church, whatever. To become a Christian is to circumcise your heart. It's to come to God and say, I need to turn from my sin. I need to be willing to admit that I'm a, whether you're religious or irreligious, it's not going to cut it. And I'm going to make a break with my past and turn to Christ. The Bible says this in Colossians 2, when you became a Christian, you were circumcised with a circumcision, not by hands, but it's the removal of the, of, of the sinful control of your life through faith in Christ. So if you're a Christian, remember that. Your heart has been circumcised. You have a new heart. You and I have the capacity to obey God now. We have put on the new man. We can do all things through Christ. But if you're not a Christian, God's not asking you to get baptized. He's asking you, will you let me change your heart? Will you come to me today and believe? And then for those of us who are believers, this is what we're called to invite. I love. Don't go home and say, hey, pastor said you want to get circumcised. No, you get it. Patch says, do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's close together in prayer. Let's ask God to take our, our troubles. Whatever it is that, that you're, you're going through right now, or maybe for someone else, the Lord Jesus says, my child, is anything too difficult for me? Give it over to the Lord. Your marriage, your kids, your finances, your health, a sin struggle, an addiction, Give it over to the wonderful Lord Jesus. Even our, our gap between 1.9 million and 1.1 million, is anything too difficult for God? Father, we thank you. We praise the Lord that you loved us first and Jesus died for us and we are now completely forgiven. Lord, forgive all of us for our doubts, for our disobedience. And Lord, together as a community, we want to say, Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Change us, O oh Lord. Strengthen us. Help us as parents as, as workers, as neighbors to live before you, to place ourselves under your supervision, 
to be humble and admit when we're wrong, to be patient with one another, to build up our Christian community. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so wonderful. Thank you for your promises, especially the promise that you're coming again. Help us to persevere by faith as we wait for your return. And Lord, perhaps this morning there will be some who will make a decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved, to become a follower. I pray that many would choose to be baptized because they believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.